Welcome to Work and Play, the award-winning podcast of Constanji Brooks, Smith & Profit, where we discuss employment news and provide practical insights and tips you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Bill McMahon. Today's episode is part two of a two-part series on non-compete agreements and traps for the unwary. My guest, once again, is Ken Carlson, co-chair of Constanji's Trade Secrets and Unfair Competition Practice Group. And Ken, let's jump right back into it. Absolutely. And, and this really takes us to the next point that is probably, uh, I mean, arguably, it is, it is the most major distinction between states. And that goes into whether or not a particular state uh, will blue pencil a covenant not to compete. And then let me explain what blue penciling means and contrast that against severability. Uh, in its broadest sense, blue penciling means judicial modification. Now, there are states that use the term blue penciling and they confuse it with, um, with severability uh, and they have different, different um, grades of blue penciling. But let's just take the basic concept blue penciling and interpret it in its broadest sense, which is when the, uh, the court would take, uh, let's say, a non-compete that they consider to be unreasonably broad. It's got a five-year restricted period and it says um, uh, all states east of the Mississippi as being the restricted territory. And so what comes out in terms of um, the evidence at a preliminary injunction hearing or if it ever goes to trial uh, or the discovery process, whatever it may be, is this. That number one, five years is going to be too long uh, and uh, just under, as a matter of law under the state law. But number two, the, the, the um, either the company or at least the territory in which that individual was primarily assigned and mostly worked really was just in a five state region in the northeastern part of the United States. OK, well, if you're in a blue penciling slash judicial modification state, the court could take up the blue pencil, if you will, cross out five and put in 18 months if they think that's the restricted period. They just so so put it blue in. penciling in that sense would be the court, you know, literally coming in and rewriting some of the words that's correct. that the parties chose in the to, contract. to make it okay. enforceable. And for the and instead of the eastern United States, all east of the all states east of the Mississippi, they would list those five states in the northeast that that they think is reasonably to be restricted. Okay. So, so 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 that's your classic blue penciling state. Uh, in the broadest sense, a judicial modification. Uh, if you're not in that kind of state, and again, using North Carolina as an example, we are not a blue penciling state. We are a severability state. There's some discussion as to how broad a severability state we are because we have a law that says a distinctly separable part. Well, I'm not, what does that mean? Does that mean it has to be set off by commas? Does that mean it has to be a separate section? Does it have to mean a subparagraph? What does that mean? Uh, and there are cases that um, either do it that more broadly or, or more narrowly. But at any rate, it's severability. It's not marking out and inserting a different term to make it more reasonable. It's rather crossing out what they consider to be an unreasonable term and then looking at the four corners of the document, classic contract severability to see if the contract can stand on its own without that marked out provision, without that stricken provision. If it can, then it will still survive. If it cannot, then it will fail. For example, going back to what we just said, let's say that uh, you, ha you had the same court in North Carolina that looked at five years and looked at all states east of the Mississippi, and there were no other alternative provisions to look at. Well, they would just knock out the five years. I'm confident of that. I, I, I just can't imagine a situation where they wouldn't. Um, Never say never, as you know, Bill. But uh, I can't imagine that situation, and it would fail because it has no 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 uh, time period. Right? They wouldn't even right. have to get to the territory. 
But let's right. say for whatever reason they think five years is okay, uh, and and the court then looks and sees, well, wait a minute, the the company themselves are only in the in the Mid Atlantic and the Northeast, and this particular employee was only in those five states. Well, if there are no other alternative provisions, they would cross out all states east of the Mississippi, and it would fail as a matter of law for lack of a geographical territory. Right. So if you're in a state that you know does not blue pencil and and only conducts maybe a severability analysis, like you said, it sounds like then you really have to be concerned about uh, integrating in some alternative provisions into the contract, perhaps. That's correct. And those are often called step-down provisions. Uh, so you would say if five years is um, considered to be unenforceable or um, uh, otherwise you know, unreasonable or otherwise unenforceable, then two years. And sometimes you'll see a third um, uh, alternative. If two years is un, uh, unreasonably broad and unenforceable, then one year or something like that. And then if uh, east of the Mississippi is considered to be uh, or deemed by a court of uh, of competent jurisdiction, that's the typical language you see, uh, to be unreasonably broad or otherwise uh, void and unenforceable, then um, it's the, you know, the, the Northeastern United States, and perhaps they list out states uh, individually and or, or perhaps as a third option. You have to be a little bit careful with those step-down provisions. Remember what I said about some states interpret uh, blue penciling differently. There is a brand of blue, blue penciling in certain states where they look at um, all those different step-down provisions. And if there's too many of them to where it's just kind of a litany of step-down provisions, they call that blue penciling. They, right. they, they essentially say that's that's basically judicial modification. Right. Um, right. So, like you've but, almost included too many contingencies yeah, that yeah. the court's not going to get in the business of choosing which one is really there. Yeah. And so I would recommend doing no more than uh, one or two step down provisions, which, again, is having the discipline not to not to be overshooting your 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 goal here. You know, don't overreach. Right. Uh, and, try to show and, coming out of the gate to the court that um, you've tried to be reasonable with this and it'll, it'll right. carry you far in enforcement. And, and presumably the more conservative your starting provision is, the less step-down provisions you need to have in the first place. Exactly. And let me say this as well, sort of as a last point concerning judicial modification. I don't know of any state whose court will simply allow a, a, a company to have a non-compete that says, you may not compete with us uh, after your employment ends, okay? And then rely upon the court to fill in everything else. A court is not going to do the drafting for you. Right. Going, they, they, might, they might push the envelope a little bit with that. I have seen them fill in a ter- territory where one did not exist based on the evidence and stuff or a time period. Right. But for the most part, they're going to want to see something there that looks like a good faith attempt to abide by that state's covenant not to compete drafting law. And then if it looks like it's overly broad, given these circumstances, then the court that will, that will do the judicial modification, the blue penciling, uh, is more apt to revise it to something that's reasonable and enforceable. That's a good, that's a really good point. So even if I mean for the listeners out there, even if you're in a state that blue pencils these agreements, uh, basically do not rely on the court to bail you out uh, from from trying to take the time to draft one of these, you know, in a reasonable way. That's correct. And speaking of drafting, let me hit another um, uh, trap for the unwary, if I could. Absolutely. And that, and that is just the agreement itself. Uh, we tend to see non compete agreements in two forms. One being in a standalone agreement, often with confidentiality and non-solicitation sections as well, but not always. 
uh, and vice versa. You know, sometimes we have confidentiality without the other two or just one of the other two and, and vice versa. The other is to have the non-compete uh, uh, provisions w- within a larger employment agreement, you know, that addresses other terms and conditions of employment, such as the position that you're holding, what your wages or salary might be, you know, benefits, um, um, sometimes cause and no cause reasons for termination, et cetera. Uh, well, most states uh, that I know of, at least that I practiced in, will allow a standalone covenant not to compete. Uh, the, uh, there are some states that will uh, only uh, require it to be part of a larger employment agreement, or at least that's what seems to be under the law. So let me just address a couple of those dynamics real quick and see there's some of the hidden traps. First of all, if you have a standalone non-compete, double check your law. Every every state that I know of, uh, in fact, I think this is true fundamental to every state that allows non-compete agreement. It has to be in writing. There's no such thing as a verbal non-compete agreement. And it has to be signed at least by the party being restricted. Now, whether it needs to be signed by the employer, uh, the company as well, is another issue. But it needs to be signed at least by the employee the individual being restricted. So that's normally done. But let's say you have a signature line down there and a standalone non-compete by both the employee and the employer, and it's given to them as part of the, you know, the new hire package or whatever. So they sign the non-compete on the first day of employment. HR takes it and sticks it in the file. Four years later, you're going to enforce it. You go to the non-compete and the company never signed it. Okay. Uh, yep. Well, you might you might be okay because uh, even under the law, if if all it requires is that the employee, the restricted party, sign it, it really doesn't matter if the company doesn't sign it. But especially depending on how it's written, which makes it look more like an agreement, you can easily see a court saying, you know what, the company didn't sign it. Absolutely. No agreement. And every now and then, you've seen this. I've personally encountered this, where you've got uh, a a. a a uh, employee handbook out there somewhere. And all they mean to say is you can't be, uh, everybody's a non-compete and this, I mean, excuse me, a not an at-will employee. And this, um, and this, uh, employee handbook doesn't do anything to create some kind of contract of employment. And then it says something like this, the only, um, contracts of employment that are valid are those signed by the company president or something like that. Right. Right. What they mean is the at-will employment context. But if you take that isolated sentence and you apply it to a covenant not to compete that has never been signed by the company, guess what? You've got a court that very well could say, well, Mr. Carlson, I hear what you're saying, but your own policy manual says that no contracts of employment are valid unless signed by the president. And your non-compete is not signed by the company, much less the president. Exactly. So, so yeah, a pretty, pretty simple rule to make sure you are you know, countersigning on any non-compete agreements you present to an employee. But to your point, Ken, it's it's often an easy one that could be overlooked, especially if the non-compete agreement, say, was was presented as part of a whole bunch of new hire paperwork and everything else. That's correct. And and, yeah. and that's unlike your your non-compete as part of a larger employment agreement, because those those are, you know, the company is going to sign that. They're going to make sure they do that. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and most companies don't have those larger employment agreements. But here's the hidden trap with the larger employment agreement. Uh, first of all, if you were in a state that requires them, uh, uh, 
to, in order to have a non-compete or just a state where, you know, you, you have it and they have this sort of twist, then just be really careful. Uh, New York is a state that, um, I guess with certain rare exceptions, if you have a covenant not to compete as part of a larger employment agreement and the company has breached the very agreement that it is seeking to enforce, then it could invalidate the non-compete, even if it's breaching it in an unrelated way. Right. Because it's part of the agreement holistically and the employee could point to a breach of the overall agreement. That's That's correct. And there's also some law up there, and I think in some other states as well, that uh, kind of distinguish between four calls, terminations, et cetera, as to whether or not those would might invalidate the non-compete. Uh, but that's those are uh, there are a lot of of different uh, uh, analyses to that before you reach a, an invalidity um, invalidity uh, conclusion. Right. So uh, so so be careful with that. And and I would say I guess my general rule is this for employ- for employers who are in states that do not require the non-compete to be part of a larger employment agreement. It's to stay away from it because anyone who has done any kind of breach of employment contract law knows that if you're going to sue on an employment contract, you can count on a counterclaim that somehow the employer violated its own contract in some way. Didn't give the proper notice, you know, uh, didn't terminated me um, uh, without cause, even though they're causing calling it with cause. So it opens up that argument. And in a standalone non-compete, you generally don't have those type of bilateral obligations. Most of the obligations are on, if not all of them are on the employee. Right. That so makes nothing sense. To breach. That makes sense. So, so kind of to wrap up the, the, all, I guess these traps for the unwary that we discussed today uh, the last one I want to touch on, and you mentioned this along the way in our discussion today, but I want to make sure that we kind of highlight it as well. Um, the idea of having a choice of law provision in, you know, in a non-compete agreement. Can you explain, first of all, what a choice of law provision is? Because I know you mentioned it, but I just want to make sure we we capture that. Yeah, uh, it's a very important term, uh, and uh, it, it should be distinguished between choice of form or uh, or jurisdiction. Uh, A choice of law provision is a provision in a contract, whether it be non-compete or really any written contract that says this agreement will be interpreted uh, and enforced under the laws of the state of X, North Carolina, Illinois, Missouri, plug and play. There has to be a connection, a nexus, if you will, between the company, the employer, and that state. You just can't throw a dart uh, on, on the map and pick that state's law. And you can't just simply, without any kind of nexus, actually pick a state law that's more favorable to non-compete enforcement if you don't have that connection. So there are limitations on it. And uh, at enforcement time, if it has a choice of law provisions, most states will enforce it, but they will apply conflicts of law analysis to it. And that will vary by state. But they will look at, um, uh, you know, just, you know, whether or not it was a, a they think a, uh, an agreement that their state law allows the parties to freely contract a, a law that uh, would apply to the agreement. And they're going to look at that kind of nexus and their whole history of choice of law, uh, case law in, in that state to determine whether or not it'll be upheld. It will often be upheld. OK, assuming you've done it right. Uh, so at any rate, uh, you, you know, just just. Just have the big picture going into covenant not to compete work. It's not just an agreement that you're having an employee sign. It's an agreement that if breached, you're going to be enforcing one day. 
And you're going to have you you're going to have to be thinking down the path, down the road, as to what gives you the best chance of enforcement in a particular jurisdiction, knowing that there are a lot of nuances to this incredibly interesting dynamic area of law that could change uh, at any given moment as well. So you have to be flexible. You have to allow yourself that flexibility, and uh, and drafting is a probably the the, the the most important first step uh, to be trying to you know, trying to draft in a way that's reasonably tight enough that no matter what happens to where the law goes, you'll be able to show a legitimate business interest being protected by the way in which you've drafted and the facts that you're presenting to the court with that particular employee. Absolutely. And that's all you can do. You know, protecting against unfair competition, the overall umbrella of that is having restrictive covenants that only protect the legitimate business interests of the employer. And therein lies all the dynamics that are that are argued over at trial. Absolutely. Before we wrap up the episode, I, I did want to I did want to touch on one piece as far as, you know, to your point, kind of developing areas of law. That, that might not even be anticipated at the time of drafting, right? Yeah. Um, and that is uh, President Biden's mo- uh, recent executive order. Uh, can you speak to that at all? And what impact, if any of that, you know, does that have right now as far as drafting considerations go? Well, right now, uh, all we know is that it's an executive order that's uh, in essence uh, uh, directing the uh, the FTC to consider, you know, doing some rulemaking to curtail the agreements, uh, whether or not that's only for federal type contractors or whether it's larger uh, scope in scope to address the private workplace remains to be seen. And frankly, no rulemaking has actually been done. So, um, so it's it's a bit uncertain right now. Probably the best um, the the best advice I can give employers trying to look down uh, the road with a, with a not so clear crystal ball is to um, do what we've just been talking about. Be as focused and as reasonable as you can under your state's law to only make sure that you're drafting and enforcing these agreements in a way that, that protect your uh, legitimate business interests. Uh, and you'll give your best chance of enforcement. And absent some kind of total ban, which is probably doubtful um, on non-competes, I just can't. I just can't foresee a federal law out there uh, invalidating covenant not to compete law in all the states. I just, I just don't see it. Uh, and so, um, you, you know, just do your best to be reasonable to protect those legitimate business interests, and uh, and you should be fine. Uh, but knowing that uh, every employer's uh, walk in uh, to a court of law generally behind the eight ball with covenants not to compete, you know, they are they are held to a fairly high level of scrutiny. Uh, but if you do it right, uh, they can be enforced. Be aware, too, nothing to do with the federal law here or federal executive order, I should say. But a number of states right now uh, are moving towards uh, different types of statutes that are curtailing the use, whether it be uh, certain employers or certain uh, wage earners, such as low-level wage earners, not being able to sign non-compete. Uh, so be aware of some of those states. Um, uh, Colorado, Massachusetts, New Jersey, even Illinois um, has uh, an ac- actual or proposed bills out there uh, that could do uh, precisely what we're what we're speaking of. And I guess the last thing to say on that, this has nothing to do with curtailing necessarily, although it can and does include restrictions, is that there are certain states 
that have covenant not to compete statutes separate and apart from the sort of movement towards restricting them. Um, Florida, Georgia, Colorado, Missouri, Texas, all have statutes out there that in some way address the drafting and enforcement of covenants not to compete rather than having that law uh, primarily built up through uh, the common law, meaning just through the court system. So be aware if there is a state statute, that's really where uh, companies should start first. If, if there's a state statute, see what it is uh, on non-competes. And if it, uh, if it addresses the drafting, if it addresses the, um, the enforcement, then uh, frankly, abide by the statute or else you're asking for trouble. That's a very good point as far as a starting point for drafting. And, and it also might give an indicator if you are in a state that blue pencils, for example, or other things along those lines that might be encompassed within the statute. Correct. Okay. All right. Well, there is, I mean, we have just covered a ton of information and, you know, issues in this episode, Ken. I really appreciate you coming on and breaking everything down for us. Well, you're welcome, Bill. It's it's my pleasure. And good luck to everyone out there. And actually, okay, a quick added bonus here. Don't forget your waiver and tolling provisions in your (laughs) non-competes. Nice. What do you you mean by that? Yeah, by waiver, I mean this, is that have at least a provision in there that says, you know, if we decide we don't, we haven't come come after uh, this employee to enforce it in a, uh, within a particular time period or the fact that we haven't uh, enforced it with other employees is not a waiver of any ability to enforce this covenant not to compete. And a tolling provision expressly states in the agreement that any period of violation within that restricted period defined in the agreement extends the restricted period by that amount of violation. Um, and that becomes a contractual provision. For example, if they violate it for, for six months out of a out of a two-year non-compete uh, and you sue on it, et cetera, then frankly, that six-month uh, violation will be added to the period so you get the full benefit of the two years. And if you do not have that in there, then uh, you're going to be relying upon a state's law on whether or not they will uh, do equitable tolling, which means the equities of the situation uh, uh, require that we extend the agreement by the amount of period of time in which uh, the non-compete was violated. And I don't know about you, Bill, but I tend to like relying upon the law rather than on equity when I'm enforcing it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Those are, those are incredible drafting tips. I'm really glad you brought them up. And, and for the listeners that made, made their way to the end of the episode, uh, the, the most important tips happened in the last two minutes. No, just kidding. But <laughs> uh, that's how, that's how it works sometimes with podcasts. You got to stay to the very end. So, there you go. Well, it's uh, my pleasure. And I hope this helped everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ken. And okay. before, before we sign off today, uh, I want to make our typical request of uh, our listeners. If you like the podcast, please let us know. Um, if you have ideas uh, for topics for future episodes, please let us know as well. Uh, please follow us, rate us, and leave us a written review on iTunes uh, or wherever else you get your podcasts so that other folks interested in employment law can find us and follow as well. And we hope you tune in again uh, for the next episode next month. And thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Ken.